Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the State of the Ark podcast. My name is Mike. My name's Kason. And I am going to give a preliminary warning to everyone watching this. This this podcast is going to be not one of the more cohesive and well well structured podcasts we've ever made. <laughs> I've I've tried to collect my thoughts on this topic, which is uh, what makes a good plot twist. Mm. Um, but uh, I, I'm still very scatterbrained, so uh, there's going to be rambling. There's going to be thoughts that are not connected. Uh, you might have to make those connections yourself, or it might sound like I have no idea what I'm talking about. So mm. give, go ahead and give your um, your uh, anticipatory dislike on the video now. <laughs> 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 and uh, we'll see where this goes. But uh, anyways. It's going to be good, though. It's still going to be good. Before we talk about plot twists, um, really the only story uh, this week that stuck out to me was that Pokemon Sword and Shield uh, was announced for the yeah. Switch this week. I'm going to go ahead and play the um, the trailer in the background while we talk about it. Um, a lot of people have asked me, since we do talk about RPGs a lot on the channel, like my thoughts on Pokemon. And mm -hmm. uh, the answer is always the same. I've only played one Pokemon game, and that was Pokemon Blue. <laughs> <laughs> my brother had red and so we traded the pokemon to each other that were exclusive to either game and i have never played a pokemon game since then not because i think they're bad or they're only for kids or something like that but just because you know in terms of um i guess like the 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 vast wealth of rpgs out there there are others i would just have more interest in playing than mm. the pokemon series um but this being the first, I guess you could call it console, mainline series Pokemon game. Yeah, yeah. Makes it kind of significant. Yeah. Um, and so, anyways, I, I like the look and style of it. I think it's true to uh, the sort of established look of Pokemon, but it, yeah. it's in HD. And, you know, they got cool renders and nice effects and, uh, you know... Freaking, like, individual blades of grass. Well, that's probably just a CGI cutscene I'm looking at right now. It's probably not what the actual game's going to yeah. look like in terms of detail. But uh, I think that the, the overall transition into a an HD-era game has has worked. I think it looks pretty good. Yeah, I think it looks um, good. I But here's here's the thing, though. and This, this is going to, you know... I don't mean to sound like the old man where like everything was better in my day kind of a thing, <laughs> but that's kind of what this is. I haven't really liked the design of the new Pokemon that have been added ever since the original 150. Me neither. Um, like they just get more alien like and weird to me. <laughs> Not that they weren't alien like and weird to begin with because they were, but I don't know. I, I just haven't ever, like, loved, like, the additional Pokemon. Like, the 150 are kind of just, like, that's what Pokemon always is and probably always will be for me. Wait a sec. Look at the sword and shield, like, reveals. Yeah, the at animation. At the very end, two minutes in. Do you see the shockwave that comes out? Hold on, let's, let's see. Oh, it's a, it's a, it's a pulse. 
It's motion oh, pulse. It's, it's motion pulse, Andrew dude. <laughs> Watch this Andrew Kramer motion pulse. This is a visual effects designers yeah. artist. Yeah. Would Any visual this. effects artist will recognize you see that, that pulse stock. right there. Yeah. Yep, that is a stock motion pulse element <laughs> from VideoCopilot. VideoCopilot.net. That, yeah. Video that is definitely a um, a lens flare from his. Uh, yeah, from um, optical flares. Optical yeah. flares pack. Oof. It's all good though. Most people. I know. I know how all of that was made. <laughs> exactly. I could make that in probably about half an hour. Yep. Anyways, that's uh, that's neither here nor there. Um, so anyways, uh, the announcement happened. Am I going to play it? Probably not. Um, mm. but Pokemon was really sweet on uh, red and blue. I loved that. Yeah, depending and, uh, on if I see more of this. I mean, my wife just recently played, I think, Pokemon Diamond and Pearl um, just recently, those... and she just had a blast playing it. So it's like, if she's interested in playing this, I'll, that'd be a fun uh, it'd be a fun game for us to play together, you know, kind of like Kingdom Hearts was. But if she doesn't really care, then I don't know if I'll, I'll be playing it. But You know what, I, though? I'll probably if, play it. If I, had, if I had kids, or even if, like... Yeah. Uh, nephew and niece were over or something like that yeah yeah i would freaking like be all in on like playing this with them yeah yeah and sort of like showing them like how pokemon works because you know we we've talked a lot in the past about what's a good starter rpg and Mm. i don't think i've ever mentioned pokemon but it really is a great pokemon is probably the best intro it's 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 really good for staple sort of features of turn-based rpgs like um, elements like especially like this element and this element are at odds and so this is weak against this kind of a thing yeah um and yeah, uh, element you know, things point, like experience all that stuff yeah yeah experience and level growth like character growth uh, yeah, gaining items. abilities as you level up you know managing items um and then uh, additionally uh, like initiative so like the speed of a character will give you a turn first kind of a oh, thing oh yeah like, yeah yeah like there are these types of staple features of turn-based RPGs that Pokemon does a great job of introducing players to. I've always said that um that Final Fantasy 7 was my first JRPG, but I don't know why I make that distinction in my head because it isn't true at all. My first Pokemon, was yeah. Pokemon Blue. Yeah, yeah. I don't know why. I I literally just thought of that. I was like, why have I always said that? It's not true at all. (laughs) I don't know. And people always bring up, yeah, I don't know. Like Nintendo never has any good RPGs. Yeah, only like the highest selling RPG ever from any company ever. Freaking Um, Pokemon, dude. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, to respond to Velhart here, uh, I I definitely don't consider Pokemon exclusively a kid's game. I think it's a lot of fun to play like, I would go back and play Blue again today. I don't know if I... You know, I have considered... What's the one that Landon got really into? I think Parker as well. Was it... Black and was White it Diamond? Or what? Was it Diamond? Oh, or they did, the like, one? Silver. Like, Sapphire. Silver! Yeah, and Sapphire. Silver and Gold, yeah. Or whatever, yeah. So, yeah, they so got that Silver era, and Gold. That era, I've always wanted to play that because I love the idea that once you beat, like, that region... In that game, you can go back and play essentially the original Pokemon. Kanto, yeah, I think, and go back yeah. to the the first region. Like that's a cool idea. So yeah, like it's like two games in one almost. Yeah, I've considered playing that one too. So I definitely wouldn't be against like uh, picking one up again. And you know, 
I, I don't see myself doing it. I don't see myself playing this, but I'm not against it. Like it does look cool. I I just don't like I just don't like the new starter Pokemon designs. They're freaking like whack. <laughs> yeah, they look weird. And that water one basically just looks like a mudkip or something. Like I don't know why they needed to make a new or Squirtle. You know, it's like when the Pokemon basically do the exact same thing. You don't need more of them. <laughs> <laughs> How many? I mean. Anyways, I'm only showing my inner ignorance about Pokemon by continuing to talk about this. So let's just move on. <laughs> okay, that's the only thing I could think of this whole week that I thought was significant. Yeah, that was so basically if you, it. If you haven't seen that and you're a Pokemon fan, what's wrong with you, right? To quote Reggie, I know for real, <laughs> you're not a real Pokemon fan. <laughs> so I don't know why we're talking to you about it, but anyways, it was literally just the only thing. So that's why we're talking about it. Let's move on to the main topic. Now. <laughs> All right. Oh, geez. Bad start. Let's get on to a worse one. <laughs> we need a better transition, a better sequitur. This week's topic is what makes a good plot twist. I mean, holy crap, man. There's so much that it's goes deep, into dude. this. It's a deep one. Do you have it's thoughts something, on this? It's something almost every, almost everyone tries to do. I think specifically now like lately when the whole, I don't know, people want to see something unexpected now. People want, people get excited nowadays about um, archetypes or tropes or, you know, certain genres being flipped, you know, on their head and having it, oh, you didn't see this coming, right? And mm. it's almost like a, a negative mark on a film or a book or a game when you, if you know something was going to happen. Um, generally speaking, that's, probably how it's always been it's just more common now that it's like if you know what something's gonna happen and then it happens then that makes it a bad that makes it bad somehow mm. right and i don't know it's kind of hard to explain exactly but i i do think that there's like people are placing a ton of value now in just being unexpected or being new or being just different for the sake of being different so i'm not like a huge fan of it necessarily um, but basically every movie now tries to have some kind of, of plot twist. And it's, in my opinion, what makes a good plot twist is you not seeing it coming. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know if that's just like my I, age. That just, I the, actually I have know. an interesting sort of counterpoint to that. Yeah. I only learned about this like very recently as I was kind of trying to do some research on this topic. But there was a study... Um, conducted at the uh, University of California, um, San Diego. Oh, nice. Uh, let me see if I can pull it up here. Um, I think the premise of it is that story spoilers don't spoil stories. And I, I like, latched onto this really quick because, you know, I have my whole vendetta about, like, people who complain about spoilers online, right? Like, especially in my <laughs> reviews and stuff. It's like... Bro, I know. You, Protect you... <laughs> yourself if you care so much. Don't <laughs> click on that video. Um, yeah. Wait a minute. I think this is it. Yeah, so I think the title of the study was Story Spoilers Don't Spoil Studies. Jonathan Story. D. Levitt, Nicholas J.S. Christenfeld. And apparently what, what they did in the, in the experiment was they had two groups of people who were going to be reading these novels. And they, they sort of graphed like how much the people liked the novels based on whether they knew the twist first 
or or whether they didn't know the twist first. And the results showed that people enjoyed the stories more when they knew the twist than when they didn't know it. Which I was like, that seems so counterintuitive. Like, if you know what's going to happen, obviously. But this kind of leads a little bit into the point I'm going to be making about the structure of how you, like, write a good twist. And that there is a lot of joy in seeing the plants and the subtle hints along the way. Uh, and, and recognizing, like where where that's going where that's leading how how that's like subtly put there and it's like oh wow like that's so cool kind of a thing right and versus stuff you I'll, get upon a second a second yeah, right the second and some people do say view. oh the, this movie's better the second time right, right. it's like because i've never ex- i've never felt that way ever i think in my life but a lot of people do a lot of people said that about star wars episode eight they're like i hated it at first and then i watched it a second time and i could appreciate it for what it was more because I wasn't, you know, my expectations were different, you know. It's like, okay, I can see well, that, but I've never I, seen Star Wars Episode Eight ever again. So. I also think that the the shock of a lot of twists sometimes are that sometimes people don't like it. Like the the shock of it, like, and we'll get into a little bit about how good twists are are sort of paradoxical in the mind, and they make you go. That's why they call it like the mind f twist or whatever like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. uh, like you can't like i don't know like my whole world's crashing so um the surprise and the shock of it often leads somebody to be like oh i don't like that like the the, sh- the shock of the reveal can seem contrived or it can seem but because you didn't see like the hints along the way and right. so anyways it was interesting to see that the results of the study showed that I mean, of course, it's going to be different on an individual level, but the study's results showed that people who knew the twist ahead of time and ended up enjoying the story more, for the most part, than the people who did not know the twist. So if anybody wants to look into that, again, the, the report or the, the, what do you call it, the study is called Story Spoilers Don't Spoil Stories by... Jonathan D. Levitt and Nicholas J.S. J.S. Christenfield. So look it up. I thought it was cool. Mm. Um, anyways. Everybody ready for this? <laughs> Gotta wipe my brow. Gotta gather myself. <laughs> <laughs> um when I think about okay, let's let's actually start it here. I don't want to, because of how angry people get. Talk about too many examples because oh, yeah. we could end up spoiling like 10 or 20 different things for people and people would have to click <laughs> yeah, away and true. not watch the podcast, right? Right. So I think it's probably best if we stick to plot twists in something that, for the most part, relatively almost everyone who watches the channel has likely played before. There are going to be some of you who have not played Final Fantasy VII, but most of you have. So before we get into the spoilers for seven, I will still warn about the spoiler so that you can click away. But um, starting on examples maybe like Final Fantasy seven, I think will will and sticking to just one or two will probably be best for avoiding uh, you know too many people not being able to even freaking watch <laughs> because they haven't you know seen or played like everything. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I'm going to talk a little bit about the prestige. I am not going to spoil the prestige's twist, though. Um, so my plan right now is to touch on Final Fantasy VII in a spoilery fashion, and that's it. We will see where that goes, and if we have other examples that come up while we're talking, then we'll be like, sorry, we're going to probably spoil this one too, you know, just warning or whatever. Um, well, maybe don't say what the plot twist is, says Miss Monet. Just say there is a plot twist. Well, in order to really di- dive into certain to, things, yeah. you have to use an example. So we're saying what makes a good plot twist. So you kind of, I think we kind of have to go into what the twist is. <laughs> My plan is only to spoil Final Fantasy VII. That's it. But I'm not going to be starting talking there. I will warn you before we do that. Okay, that's the premise. That's all done. Now I want to talk a little bit about The Prestige, which is a great movie. Everyone should watch it. I'm not going to spoil it. Okay, yeah. so you can listen to this safely. Uh, the Prestige is a movie by Christopher Nolan, and it's about uh, two rival magicians um, who are sort of like trying to one-up each other all the time with their magic tricks. Uh, that is essentially what the idea of the movie is. But there's a great line uh, in the movie. I would play it, but uh, it will get flagged immediately <laughs> if we have movie quotes that long in it. So I'm just going to kind of read the quote. Yeah. But I find that there's an, a really interesting parallel between magicians or the uh, the art of magic in the sense that you see on like uh, in Vegas or something like magic shows, right? So the art behind misdirection and and magic tricks and uh, twist endings or, or plot twists. And which is why The Prestige is such an interesting movie to me, because it sort of combines the two things and shows in a really, really interesting way, like the parallels between the two things. Um, so. Oh, no, Rob says he got outbid at the last second. That sucks. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that sucks, man. Um, okay. Anyways, sorry. I, I should not have let myself get onto that tangent. Um, so he, uh, Christopher Nolan is the filmmaker sort of uses, um, the, the formula of, of a plot twist in a movie in storytelling and makes a parallel with it to these magicians in the story and what they do, you know, like the, the art behind, uh, how they misdirect people. And this quote from the movie, I think, uh, is a good place to start in sort of like seeing what those parallels are. So the quote is, Every great magic trick consists of three parts or acts. The first part is called the pledge. The magician shows you something ordinary, a deck of cards, a bird, or a man. He shows you this object. Perhaps he asks you to inspect it to see if it is indeed real, unaltered, normal. But of course, it probably isn't. Uh, in, in, a, in a lot of ways, I feel like this is also true of stories that have a plan for a big twist in it. The pledge, as it's called in magic, is similar to what you would do in the premise or the, the early exposition of the story. You set up a scenario that seems to be real, unaltered, normal. There's nothing, and, and you allow the reader or the, if, you, if it's a film, the, the viewer if it's the game, a player, to inspect that scenario and say, yes, I see nothing 
wrong here. <laughs> this mm. this appears to be everything's in order. All right. Right. Uh, the second act is called the turn. The magician takes the ordinary something and makes it do something extraordinary. Now you're looking for the secret, but you won't find it because, of course, you're not really looking. You don't really want to know. You want to be fooled. That part of it, the part about wanting to be fooled, may not necessarily apply. I think it could. I think it does because of suspension of disbelief. You don't know that you're doing it. But secretly, that's you're doing true. It. <laughs> that's true. I mean, you yeah. go to the movie and you want to be immersed and you want to believe in it and you want to be surprised and you want, like, you really yeah. internally want that. I guess you're right. You don't say you want it, but who cares what you say? You secretly, deep down inside, you wouldn't be there if you didn't want it. Right. So you allow your viewer to inspect it. And then generally, you have what's called this, well, what the, he's calling here the turn. Something out of the ordinary starts happening, a mystery is created, and you start looking for the answer. But generally, you're going to follow the explanation for this turn of the extraordinary, the thing that gets out of place, the mystery. The explanation for that mystery, generally, you're going to believe the initial explanation, the first thoughts the characters start to have about why this might be happening. They're going to start putting together their theories on it, and they're going to lead you on a path of misdirection where you think, yeah, we're, we're, getting, we're getting to the bottom of this mystery. We're solving it. We're moving in this direction because the premise, let's say, um, I'm going to just completely make this up. <laughs> let's say you have a story and uh, um, like everybody in the town is acting strangely. Um, and, and you have like a character planted there. Let's say it's a doctor or a priest or somebody authority who in a, in a position of authority of some kind to elaborate on the reason for it. And that character tells you there's some supernatural explanation. And in order to lift this curse that's happening, you have to go do this, this, and this. The way that our brains tend to work, and I will try to dig into this actually a little bit more later, is we're going to follow that line of explanation, line of thinking. We're going to have a more of a binary way of looking at things. And so we're going to assume the explanation or the premise given as the misdirection is true. And we're going to believe that. And this is part of what I think you were saying, Kaysen. You're looking for the secret, but you don't really want to find it in that premise of the explanation or the misdirection. You want to believe in the magic, right? You want to believe it's real. And so you're going to go along with it on the trail they lead you on until the third act. Um, Which he says here... uh, now you're looking for the secret, but you won't find it because, of course, you're not really looking. You don't really want to know. You want to be fooled, but you wouldn't clap yet because making something disappear isn't enough. You have to bring it back. That's mm-hmm. why every magic trick has a third act, the hardest part, the part we call the prestige, which is where you – and in the story would be the twist, the, the real reveal. So we go along on a false victory in the story. We arrive at a false conclusion, and then the real – conclusion is revealed and we go holy crap no way and so what makes that work you know that moment the prestige moment of the story when you reveal the truth 
what makes the audience what what goes into that which makes the audience go i accept that that's crazy holy crap that really like surprised me in a good way and i feel satisfied by that twist and what makes the bad examples not work right mm -hmm. it's kind of where we're trying to get to <laughs> in the discussion uh do you have any thoughts on that before we like move forward uh well i mean i think it's good so far i think the analogy works extremely well um and it only works as long as people do suspend their disbelief. Like that is essential. So whatever you do, you have to maintain the illusion of the world that you created. So, mm -hmm. you know, translating that to a movie or a story or a book, like the, the, the number one job is to, um, to keep your subjects immersed, right. To not like for acting, you, you don't break character. You need people to continue to believe that you are what you say you are or who you say you are. And people know in their minds that Frodo is not Elijah Wood. They're not the same person. But when you watch the movie, you're like, this is Frodo Baggins. This is not Elijah Wood. And as yeah. soon as there's something happens that makes you think, oh, that didn't sound much like Frodo. That sounded more like Elijah Wood. That's a problem, right? And so, uh, you know, same thing with the magic tricks. I accept your premise. So your act two works, but you've got to go to act three to bring me along. Yeah. So where's your prestige in this whole thing, Mike? Okay, so. But real quick, I did want to um, mention a couple comments okay. that people have made so far. Christine says, it's weird. I want to know how they do the magic trick, but if I can't figure it out, then I want to believe that it truly is magic. Yeah, definitely. And then she also said Shutter Island has a good plot twist. Do you remember watching that? I do. That was a long time ago. Damn. That was a long time ago. Uh, the plot twist was cool. The movie had some weird issues, but the plot twist was like, yeah, you know, it was, it was cool. If, if you haven't what seen, if anyone here has not seen The Prestige, you should watch it. It's a really good movie. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it follows these principles, like, in a really brilliant way. I thought that it, it, it did its plot twist extraordinarily well. Yeah. And Lego um, Dog saying that this is why we love mystery stories. Yes. Yes, definitely. And that is absolutely true if you can fit some sort of mystery into if whether you're making a mystery game book novel or not if you can put a mystery in there uh it'll it'll do very well especially if you're expecting to have a twist that people can believe in yeah now to sort of tie the next part of where i want to move um into something we've actually kind of hit a lot in our discussions about storytelling um you know, what, what is the purpose of storytelling to begin with? Right. Uh, to sort of like summarize my feelings on that. It's really just, it's communication, right? We're trying to communicate ideas to each other. We are all locked in our own individual minds. And so we can't transport our feelings to each other <laughs> or like our, our exact thoughts to each other at its most like basic level. Yeah, we have yeah. to try and like translate those thoughts and feelings into language and then use language to communicate the meaning. And language is not perfect at that, at its most basic level, right? If, we, if we're just talking about words, yeah, like I was looking a little bit into, um, I think it's uh, Jacques Derrida, Jacques uh, Derrida, talk, yeah, the, he, the French um philosopher from yeah, like talks, 60s. talks about uh, deconstruction. Yeah. 
right? Yes. And he's, so, he's so, the deconstructionist. So, like, language being self-referential is a real problem because you say, uh, what does, I don't know, the, the definition of this word mean? And you say, well, it means this, the state of being this. And it's like, well, what's that? Well, that's the state of being this. And it's just a bunch of, like, synonyms. But you can't yeah. really get at, like, an actual underlying meaning of something because the words reference each other. Yeah. And so without things like uh, vocal expression, facial um, expression, uh, hand gestures, yeah. and body language. And the assumption of prior knowledge. Yes. That you already know some of what I'm talking about, so we can operate based on that. You don't need to go to the beginning, you know. Yeah. So without all of that inserted into our speech and our way of communicating with each other, just language at its most basic level does not carry the meaning that I think we would think or hope it does. <laughs> yeah. we, we, because there are inherent problems like the fact that its definitions are self-referential and you can't actually arrive at a, a legitimate, like meaningful definition of something without, well, it kind of means this. Well, what does that mean? <laughs> well, it actually kind of means that. <laughs> well, Chocolate Rob is saying describe blue. Oh, yeah, exactly. Another analogy that's often used is describe the taste of salt. Yes, you can't. And, and you just language, can't. <laughs> language is not suitable to do something like that. You cannot yeah. communicate those things with language. It's impossible. Nope. So um, we use analogies. We use like all kinds. These, these storytelling methods are often used to try and like arrive uh in sort of like more abstract ways at communicating these themes and messages and stuff that we, that we want to give to each other. So the, the entire art of storytelling, the entire art of it is about directing the attention of your listener or your audience, right? We've talked about what, what's good directing in the past. It's all about directing attention. What do we want you to see and look at and notice? And how does that relate to, our eventual reveal of the theme or message. What are we trying to say here? And you need to know all of this context in order for that to make sense, right? Yeah. This is what storytelling is. It's a communication of ideas in this sort of, when it comes to fiction, especially this, these scenarios we create in order to best communicate that message in a, in an artful way, rather than just sort of trying to rely flatly on language to communicate it. Right. Because often that fails us. So we try to create an analogy, a scenario, a metaphor, whatever it might be that helps people sort of understand and internalize the mm. meaning. Right. See, but metaphors, metaphors always have holes. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's there's going to be a spectrum to which someone is successful at using storytelling to communicate the right. message. And so uh, all of that comes down That's to true. mastering a skill, right? Yeah, yeah. But it's still a, a, an effective method if done correctly at sort of like delivering that. So I believe the most effective plot twists are ones that create paradoxes in the mind and that challenge the very common binary way of thinking that we have. Uh. And this is going to touch into something we'll get into in the community stories question later. And mm. we'll probably carry this into next week's podcast discussion as well when we talk about villains. 
But I think that it is a natural tendency or inclination for people to have a very binary way of thinking. Um, to define things based on what they are not rather than trying to define what they are, right? It's easier to do it that way. It's easier to define something by looking at the things it isn't <laughs> rather than like, it, that's, I think, just a, a very quick way for the human brain. And it sort of leads to this black, white, man, woman, uh, good, evil, this sort of just binary way of thinking. It, it's, it's a natural tendency that we have. And I think what really good plot twists do, again, this isn't all plot twists, but what I think really good plot twists do is show us how those things that we think are different are actually more the same than we thought they were. And it creates this thought of like, wait a minute, like it like sort of shatters your worldview, so to speak, because <laughs> mm -hmm. you, you see these things as distinct and opposite and not the same. But then they go, actually, these things are the same and you have to think about it on a little bit of a deeper level than, than you t naturally or maybe the, the tendency, the internal tendency is for most people. Yeah. So let's talk about, I think we could talk about two. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring two of them. Uh, Star Wars. <laughs> if you don't know the plot twist of the original Star Wars trilogy, I mean, like, where have you been? How have you not seen those? But... That's, I think, a pretty safe one to talk about. Mm. And then we'll talk about Final Fantasy VII after that, right? Uh, so, warning. If you haven't seen Star Wars Episode Four, Five, and Six, the original trilogy, New Hope, Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi, I mean, go watch them, right? <laughs> go watch yeah. them. Pause the podcast, watch them, and then finish the podcast. They've been available for decades now. Yeah, a long time. We start the story with the premise that Darth Vader and Anakin Skywalker are different people. Anakin Skywalker is told to us, narr the narration, the premise of the person who knows what happened, who is Obi-Wan Kenobi, sets him up as this good man who was a great pilot and a good friend and all of these things that Darth Vader is not. Remember how we define things by what they are not more so than what they are, mm. right? Darth Vader is not a good friend. He is not a good person. He's evil. So they cannot be the same. These are two different things, right? Mm. And it is revealed in the second movie, Empire Strikes Back, actually, I am Anakin Skywalker. We are the same person. And the paradox in Luke's mind is, that's not true. That's impossible. Mm. That cannot be. <laughs> because my father is not all the things that you are. So we take this binary way of thinking, separating things into yin and yang, opposites, black and white. And we start saying, nope. The world is more gray than that, and there's more complexity, more nuance to this situation than you originally believed. And that makes Luke and the entire audience go like, oh, crap, what does this mean? 
Like, what? wait a minute. Now we have to, like, really, like, dig into this. What does this mean? It shatters your perception of reality and makes you sort of come to a place where you've got to reckon with that, that the world is not binary, that things are not black and white. And, and so what does this mean? Does this mean he can be turned? Does this mean he has parts of him that are good and parts of him that are evil? How do we reconcile this? <laughs> right. Right. And that's why the twist is so effective because all of this starts racing through your mind and you're trying, like I said, to reconcile things that you thought could not be the same. They have to be separate categories. Um, now, now again, this isn't the only kind of plot twist, but I think that these are some of the most effective because they make us think on a different level. And if used in tandem with a good theme, which is the message of the story, it can make you internalize that and go like, wait a minute, maybe I think too strictly in a binary way about things. Maybe I'm too tribalistic in how I treat my political enemies or in um, the way that maybe like family members I'm at odds with. Maybe if I examine this from a different perspective with a little more nuance, maybe I can find some common ground and work through things. You see what I'm saying? Like these types of messages can sort of like help us internalize those things. And that's where the power of a good story comes in. And a plot, an effective plot twist like that can really help you to shatter your rigid way of thinking and, you know, sort of like make a turn and think about things in a little bit of a different way. Real quick, okay. Alex Mamides is asking if it's okay to bring examples on the chat. <sighs> I would say no. No. <laughs> Just don't. Everyone's been really good about this so far. Um, no one's really, you know, done anything crazy. Um, while we do want to, if you, if, it would be nice if you guys could stick to the examples that we use um, instead of using new examples. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Um, anyways, so yeah, just try to avoid any sort of spoiler in the chat. We'd yeah. appreciate it. Um. But if you want to bring up, like, the title of the thing and say, like... Yeah, you can say what it is. Uh, there's a great plot twist in this. You guys should see it or something like that. I have a thought, though. I have a thought based on what you were saying here. This okay. is interesting. And it kind of connects into that university, UCSD, uh, San Diego study. Oh, sure. Right? Yeah. And it's basically that... I got to think of a way to put this. Um, maybe twists are not generally good for stories like generally for people's enjoyment of stories. Mm -hmm. So um, you talk about seeing things in a different way or about the paradoxical nature of human beings as good, a combination of both good and evil sure. um, or at least the potential for good and the potential for evil. Uh, Darth Vader is both of those things realized, which is uh, uncommon, but um, still, you know, everybody kind of has that. Um, and that, you know, the, the twist kind of makes you think a little bit, um, does the twist make you think more deeper about something if you know it's coming? Also, generally speaking, is it a twist if you know that it's coming? If you go into Star Wars with the expectation that this is a story about a kid whose father used to be good, then became bad and is now mm -hmm. the evil Lord, um, it's I, I would argue that it's actually not a twist when that revelation happens and right. that possibly the reason why people 
who know twists ahead of time have a greater enjoyment of something would be because twists in general, it makes it not a twist anymore. So twists in general aren't all that conducive to good storytelling. Maybe. I, I would say that my, um, my intuitive thought on that, I guess, just my, inst- my instinct on that, mm-hmm. I can't say for sure because I haven't actually read the entire study. I just saw some of the well, results of it and thought that yeah. they were interesting. I, it was they were counterintuitive to what I would have thought the results would have yeah me too. Uh, been so but I think that there is a part of us where something surprising something like that really like twists like that really hard and 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 then sort of like challenges our thinking a lot of times I think that can have the adverse effect where we don't want that to happen. We don't want our worldview to be challenged or shaken because like, it's comfortable. We feel like we have the answers. We feel like we know things. We feel like we know a lot of things we don't really know. <laughs> right, um, and, totally. and, and this is actually something I covered on the podcast that you weren't able to be there for, so I don't know if you've seen it. But it's the one where I covered um, uh, the way, like, the human brain processes things and how individual brains process the same sensation and interpret it very differently. Hmm. And this is how, you know, and it, um, how can I most quickly summarize this? <laughs> um, he talked a lot in the talk that I covered there about, uh, basically how many genes are dedicated in the human genome to a sense of smell, like a, a huge percentage of them are, which makes sense for, mammals in general who relied on sense of smell to survive find food avoid things that are poisonous Mm -hmm. you know whatever it might be so there are certain things uh, in the in the in our senses that cause automatic responses right but those are very very small so there are some smells that are immediately repugnant and like no matter what like that's the automatic response in all people you're going to go, ooh, like recoil from that sensation. And these are basically instinctual um, survival type of responses. Like I need to stay away from that or I should pursue that. This is good for me. This is not good for me. Right. But those, the, the number of automated responses like that are very, very small. And mm-hmm. for all the other sensations and combinations of sensations that we could possibly encounter, we have to create a meaning for it ourselves because there is no automatic instinctual interpretation of the sensation there. So as babies, we're just all this new sensation and we have to decide what that means to us. And this leads to decades and, and I mean, an entire lifetime worth of individual experience that is very unique to only that person where they see a combination of sensations and go, I like that. And I, I, I like that because of who knows why, who knows what the situation was in which you encountered that, what mood you were in, who was there with you, like <laughs> right. that created a positive uh, experience around that sensation. And you go, I like that. And, and, and maybe it creates a sense of nostalgia and you go like, yes, like I hear that tune. And it automatically lifts my mood and I love that. Whereas another person could encounter the same exact sensation or, or whatever 
and have mm-hmm. a negative experience around that and go, I don't like this. And neither of them are wrong because right. it, it, all of those sensations, we have to create the meaning for them ourselves based on our own individual experience. Anyways, kind of a long tangent there. But the whole point is, is that uh, I think often when we, we, we create these worldviews, we create this way of thinking based on our experiences. And any time that that is abruptly challenged, I think there is a natural human tendency to reject at first and go, no, 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 that can't be right. I'm comfortable. I have a basis of um, security in this worldview I've created or in this way of life that I have or whatever it is. And, and that's what I choose to believe. That's what I choose to accept <laughs> because if that's, you know, and this comes down to tribalism too. Like if my oh, totally. tribe, my way of thinking is right, then I have a better chance of survival mm-hmm. than, and I want my way to win. So I will fight for it harder. And it, and, and that makes our, in, our, again, like our um, natural behaviors make a lot of sense when people fight over things like video games. Is Final Fantasy 7 or 6 better? Is uh, Sony or Nintendo better? Sega or Nintendo? You know, you join tribes and you want that tribe to win. And anyways, this all kind of ties together. But I think twist endings in some cases can, just the initial shock of it can create an adverse effect where the person goes, I don't like that. I I would say, okay, keep going. I was just going to finish up, but... If they are softened to that surprise at first and they know kind of where it's going and they see the pieces and the hints along the way, let's say, they can sort of slowly be introduced to the concept that is going to challenge them and think, hmm, you know, like when I consider all of this, that's actually kind of cool. Versus like, Bam! Being slammed in the face or running under a brick wall and going like, no, 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 that can't be right. So I would, again, my instinct on that is that could be a reason why people who had the story spoiled ahead of time liked it better than people who didn't. But I don't know. So maybe in that sense, the a mark of a good twist would be one that doesn't give you whiplash, so to speak. <laughs> a good twist is one that... Um, that people can sort of see coming, like not necessarily that they know it's going to happen, but that it's not outside of the realm of possible things that their brain thought could happen. You've got to create a world where it's possible that this could happen. Right. And then when it happens, people are more willing to accept it as opposed to just like, Oh, this crazy thing just happened that you didn't even know was possible. And it's like, well, that I think people react adverse to that. Yeah. Makes a little bit of sense. I think. Yeah. So, and this leads into the kind of the next part. Christine is sort of touching on it here. But yes, a bad plot twist is one that you could never have possibly seen coming because it is against the internal logic of the story. Right. And is it was never even ever hinted at whatsoever and just completely slaps you in the face out of left field. And there was no trail, like no trail of breadcrumbs, crumbs, nothing left behind that would like suggest that that would be the conclusion. There's nothing satisfying about that. It's just like, hey, guess what? This person who we 
it, it isn't even, even misdirection. It's just we straight up told you they were this and showed you they were this, but really they're, they're this. Yeah, that's that probably not a good plot twist. <laughs> yeah, that's very bad. <laughs> Don't ever um, that's not how you do a good plot twist. Yeah. A good plot twist has hints dropped right from the very beginning. It's just, again, the magician's trick is in misdirection. They want you to pay, again, the, and the director's job, remember, is directing attention. We direct your attention onto this so that you're looking here and you're thinking along the lines. But in every scene, there's a little Easter egg. There's a little hint. There's a little something there that when you turn away from what they want you to look at, and this is what I do when I watch magic tricks, right? Um, I, I, they, there's very strong tells that the magician does, does to try and get you to look at something. And then with the, the sleight of hand, with the other hand, that's where they're hiding. That's where, that's where the whole trick is at, is, is just in the fact that they are telling you to look at this. And so you're looking there and you're not seeing what the other hand does, right? And, and it's the same exact thing in storytelling. They're telling you really hard, look at this. But when you take a second to step back and look at what they're, what they're not showing you directly and, and try to put the pieces together, you can follow this alternate sort of like explanation of things and predict what's going to happen. Um, the thing is that, again, <clears throat> touching back on what you were pointing out when I said this might not be uh, apply, you don't want that. You don't want to really know the... In, the uh, you, you want to, you, you don't actually want to find okay let me just read this I'm completely butchering this holy fuck. <laughs> slow down the magician takes the ordinary something and makes it do something extraordinary now you're looking for the secret but you won't find it because of course you're not really looking you don't really want to know you want to be fooled right yeah. so each of us wants to be fooled by the storyteller but we also want the hints to be there so that we had a chance of seeing the truth. And in fact, the best twist endings or, or plot twists to me are the ones where they reveal it and you go, oh my gosh, I knew that. I should have seen that coming. I remember right. this and this and this. That makes sense. Right. That's the twist that you want to happen. That's what you want the viewer to do. And they go, oh man, that just like that opens up and that like changes things. And now like, I have to think about this and if, but they're excited about it because they did follow the, the plot points to, to that conclusion. They just were misdirected. They were looking at something else. And so it's, it feels surprising when the real reveal happens. Um, now I'm going to talk about final fantasy seven. So if you, have not played that game and you don't want the twist of the game revealed to you now would be a good time to stop watching the podcast i cannot tell you how long it will be before we return and we're not talking about this so you kind of probably just need to leave for the duration <laughs> yeah sorry watch it pick up if, the podcast later <laughs> if you're watching on youtube there are always time codes in the description that you can skip ahead to but if you're watching this live i can't tell you how long we'll be talking about this point yeah. so that is what it is spoiler warning complete here we go 
The entire plot twist of Final Fantasy VII is centered on what really happened in Nibelheim. So the original telling of that story is the misdirection. It's yeah. you're, 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 the the narrator, the the what do you call it? It's not the false narrator, but I don't know what the actual storytelling term is for it. I've forgotten what it is right now. Yeah, I don't know. Um. Anyways. The unreliable narrator, I think is what it's called, mm. um, is Cloud. Cloud is retelling the events that happened. And we are accepting the premise of his, uh, of the truth of what he's saying, right? Because he was there. And so, like, we, again, the, the way that our brains naturally work in terms of, like, what we believe and don't believe and how we categorize things leads to us accepting his, uh, his, retelling of the events yeah it's like why why would why in our minds would his retelling be inaccurate yeah and we have no reason to suspect that yeah none whatsoever none. and so that's where the misdirection starts right we assume that cloud what and and this is actually kind of the opposite <laughs> now that i think about it of two things becoming one it's the two things are one cloud mm. and first class soldier are the same person Oh, yeah. So it's kind of the reverse of that. And we assume Cloud is first class soldier. Cloud is this person who was on an assignment with Sephiroth in Nibelheim. Um, and he retells that event. And we come to find out later, Cloud and first class soldier are not the same person. They are separate. So we have a new person, Zack, who was the actual first class soldier. And Cloud was just... Actually, there's kind of two twists in it. So first, <laughs> we're led to believe that Cloud was not there at all. Uh, he is a clone and was given false memories by Genova, and he mm -hmm. was never really there, and all of that never really happened the way that he thought he, it did because he wasn't actually there present. Right. Right. But then the twist is revealed that, no, he was there. He just wasn't first-class soldier. Um, so there's actually two kind of like twists to that right um and then uh let's see what are the other things you need to understand about this i think that pretty much covers it sure. but anyways we learn that he just was a regular foot soldier dude he wasn't actually there on, a, on an assignment as like uh a, a, a member of soldier hmm. okay so the thing is, is that it, it, they don't just slap you in the face with this. They introduce the, the context of the concepts that, that lead to you being able to internalize and understand those reveals slowly over time. So this is one of the things that I think Final Fantasy VII does really well from a storytelling perspective. Its world building is done really, really well. It gives it to you piecemeal, a little bit at a time. And doesn't do a ton of gigantic exposition dumps. So, you know, we start in Midgar and we learn about this entire concept, the theme of the game, which is, uh, you know, the, 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 the greed of um, Shinra is sucking the life out of the planet, you know, the environmental message there, right? Um, and we learn about kind of how the, the rules of the, the world work. Oh, Mako Energy is it comes from the life stream which is like the planet's spirit right so we're using the planet's spirit energy and we're depleting and killing the planet as we use this 
um, energy for mm-hmm. our civilization, for, for electricity, essentially, right? And then, you know, if you, if you refine that energy into these crystal forms, they can give you uh, powers. And those powers are actually the memories of people who lived before returning back to the spirit of the planet. So people, when they die, their spirit returns back to the life stream. And so the life stream is like this collection of memories and experiences. And so you can take that and refine it and you can learn the knowledge that people before you had. They reveal these rules and the way that the world works slowly over time. They don't just like dump all that on you at once. Similarly, Final Fantasy VII paces the sort of like scrutiny behind Cloud's retelling of events in this sort of slow fashion. You start to have doubts about was what, something doesn't quite work out. And they use Tifa as sort of like the character who embodies this because she's sitting there listening and she was there. And right. from the beginning, she's like, there's something not quite right about this well there's something entirely wrong about it but how could you possibly know because you're retelling a lot of these things as they did happen as if you were there but i don't remember you being there right and so she starts trying to work through the explanation for this and she there's little bits of dialogue throughout where she goes cloud you know i'm kind of like She's she's real confused and she's like, are you really who you say you are? She'll drop like these little hints all along the way that bring into question who he is. And there's like little gaps in his story, little things that don't work. And this is, again, over the course of time as the kind of plots moving forward slowly but surely revealed until the point where we go, yeah, there, there are big problems with the story. That can't be right. So we're led to the assumption Cloud wasn't there. His retelling of the story can't be right. There's got to be another explanation for it. That's the misdirection, right? right. Then, but but it's so it's so easy. It never the, the really real occurs ex- to you that yeah. he was one of the little. He was people. there. He was, and one that's of the why he knows it. That thought never goes he into just, your mind. He just wasn't. The first class soldier. Yeah. <laughs> that it just doesn't occur to you because they misdirect you. They direct your attention to the fact that see there are problems in the story, therefore he couldn't have been there and you accept right. that explanation. And you go, "Oh, uh, yeah." And you just sort of like believe that because they tell you that instead mm-hmm. of saying, "Of course there could be another explanation." Right? And so then when that when the second twist is revealed, you're working through Cloud's subconscious, and it's revealed he was there, he was just a coward, he want, he still looked up to Sephiroth, he wished he could be in Soldier, but he wasn't strong he enough make to it. make it. He had it. to go back to his hometown not having made it yeah. into Soldier, and, it, and that, that wrecked him. And being ashamed, yeah. he hid from Tifa. He hid under the mask, right? Under the, the, the Soldier uniform, not the... the soldier the programming but the the shinra soldier foot foot footman soldier outfit you know the the helmet so she's her sort of like working to the conclusion of how he could possibly know this when he wasn't there is based on her assumption he wasn't there because she didn't see him because he was highting but see, even she is an unreliable an unreliable narrator she didn't have the whole picture because she didn't see it all right yeah 
So that's what makes that second twist so freaking brilliant is yeah. that it, it's, it's, it's internally, uh, the, the logic is internally consistent. There are hints dropped all along the way. And it was just that last piece of the puzzle, that last conclusion, that last perspective we had never considered all along the way when that's finally revealed Yes, I believe that, and that's awesome. Because not only does it confirm what we originally wanted to believe before the first twist, right? How, how we talked about how twists sometimes hurt. We don't want to believe yeah, the, the yeah. reveal. That's exactly what happened in the first twist. We don't want to believe Cloud's uh, a clone. We don't want right. to believe that he wasn't really there. We don't want to believe he's not like a real person. We yeah. we, we want to believe that he he's the main character. He's cool. I relate to him. He's a yeah. good guy and he's, you know, he's not a pawn. He's not a puppet of, of Sephiroth or anything like that. We don't want to believe that, but that's what they lead us to believe. Mm -hmm. And then when it's revealed, yes, he is actually with a few differences. He's obviously wasn't a soldier, but he is a real person. He is, you know, like this good um, individual free human being. It's like the relief from that. And, and that twist is so amazingly well done in terms of how it led you here and then led you here with misdirection. It's it's yeah. one of the best plot twists I've ever seen in anything. <laughs> and it was so incredibly satisfying. Um, and it was it was done, again, all from the storyteller's uh, ex extremely well-constructed misdirection, sleight of hand, similar to uh, the work of a magician. Except they do it to you twice <laughs> yeah. in Final Fantasy VII, which is like just really throws it for a loop. But you feel so good about it when you and, and you believe it, and it's it, it makes sense, and it's it's all there. And and now when you play it for the second time, the second run, like we've talked about, and you look yeah. at the hints all along the way, you go, "Holy crap! It was like it was there in front of my nose all along, all <laughs> along." Right? Yeah. So, anyways, that ends the plot spoilers for final fantasy seven. We're done with that now. We're done. But that more or less, uh, sums up my feelings about what makes a good plot twist. Um, I like that. You have to plant both the misdirected explanation for events at the beginning, but also leave a subtle, really subtle trail of breadcrumbs along the way. And didn't just misdirect the, their attention away from that. Say, look at this. See, this is this is the explanation. And don't give them any reason to doubt you. Use a, a, a an unreliable narrator, whatever it might be. And it's like, oh, why would they be lying to me? Of course this is it. And they just kind of follow that train of thought because you're telling them to. And you're leading them that way. And, and you're saying, hey, look here. Right? The magician's telling you, okay, look at this. And, and they're, they're directing your attention over here while underneath... All of that stuff is laid there. And so then when you go back and watch it and you're not paying attention to what the storyteller tells you to look at and you go, oh my gosh, it was there all along. And, yeah. and it was right there in front of my nose. And I, 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 I should have known. <laughs> I should have known that. I knew right. that that, right? That's what makes a good plot twist is when you have that reaction in the audience. I would agree with that. I would agree with that. It's kind of fun to have the... Um... You know, this is one thing that M. Night Shyamalan, at least in his early films, did extremely well. 
mm-hmm. because those hints are kind of all over. Um, uh, what was that one he did with with Haley Joel Osment? Oh, um, Bruce Willis. Six Sense. Yeah, Six Sense. The Six Sense. Yeah. You don't need to talk about what it is, but it's just all throughout that film you you are given the hints. And I remember that was around the time where people were just like, holy cow, like having a good twist at the end of your movie was just like, it was a big deal. It was like the new thing to do. And M night Shyamalan was kind of like one of the pioneers in making that happen. Not to say he was the first to ever do it, but he kind of started the trend that still carries through today of everyone needs to have this twist at the end of your, at the end of your um, films now. Um, But being able to see along the way all of the hints that were being given is what made it such an effective twist, not just the, the stupid stuff that some other movies do where it's just like, <laughs> you had no idea. Because people don't want to be fooled like and laughed at. You know what I'm saying? You don't, yeah. want, like, you don't want to feel stupid. When, no. If you see a twist coming in a film, you don't want to feel like you didn't see it because you're dumb or because the director just, if the only reason you didn't know a twist was coming was because they didn't tell you it was coming, it's just frustrating. It's just dumb. Like that's it. That was the only reason. But when, when there's at least a way you could look back and see that it's possible, that's just when it gets super cool. I've seen a lot of, a lot of Asian horror films do this really well. Yeah. (laughs) And Korean horror films do this super, super well. What was that one? I think it was called the eye. Is that what it was called? Yeah. Korean horror film. Yeah. Dude, that movie's good <laughs> it's really good and it's really scary <laughs> i love that movie there's an american version don't watch that. yeah with jessica alba that's it's it's just not the same watch the korean version of the eye that is that is a good horror movie like not yeah. not just because oh i was you know i felt unsettled or it was scary or whatever it was effective but because the movie's just really good a lot yeah. of horror movies they're just trying to create fear in you and you know it is what it is but they often don't actually have like a good plot (laughs) and like good character development and stuff like that. Like the eye is like a good story and like it uses the horror elements to like support its character development and stuff. It's just, it's good. It's really good. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. Not much to add there. I think you covered it really well. Um, That is the, that is the end. That's what makes a good plot twist of our discussion about plot twists. That wasn't as rambly as I was thinking it was going to be. Somehow that kind of came together okay. You can now switch your dislike to a like, I think. Yes. On the video. First off, (laughs) War 624. I have seen Old Boy, and holy crap, that movie is crazy. (laughs) But anyways, we don't need to talk about that. But that one, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of... I didn't didn't know that Old Boy was a Korean version first. I did, yeah. I've actually only seen the Korean version. I've not seen the original. (laughs) Yeah, I've only heard of the, um, I've only heard of the American version, but uh, oh, I didn't know that it was a remake of a Korean movie. That's crazy. Yeah, that the Korean, it's it is crazy. It's good, but it's messed up. (laughs) Um. Okay, so let's move on to some community stories here. Um, the first one comes from uh, Lipstick Generation. Oh yeah. Let me um he uh Greg, who has followed us quite a long time, big uh, member of the community. Um he's in a band called Lipstick Generation. I'm gonna read his um his little paragraph here inside of Discord. 
so you guys have some context to this. Um, he says, hello, everyone. Greg Troyan from Lipstick here. Lipstick is undergoing a process of rebranding very similar to the process of transitioning from Dark Pixel to Resonant Arc. And we've been hard at work creating new music and new and a new image for the transition. However, I'm still proud of the past work I've done and decided I wanted to share what is considered by many Lipstick fans to be our best song, The Flash. The song showcases the talents of my good friend Billy Morris, most famous for playing guitar in Warrant, Quiet, Riot, and Tough. It's also the only song of mine, to my knowledge, that a fan has tattooed the lyrics of onto their body, which is extremely flattering as a songwriter. <laughs> I would like to share new music uh, with all of you very soon, but in the meantime, I hope you can enjoy this song. Um, a must-listen for anyone who loves ripping guitar solos. I understand there are time constraints with the podcast, so I recommend jumping ahead to the solo at 2.55. Um, and then P.S., the 619 has the most epic shredding in the solo. So keep in mind, this is a 7... I'll put the link here for everyone to look at, and this will be in the description, of course. But the song is 7 minutes, 42 seconds long. Okay. And he says the solo starts at 2 minutes, 55 seconds, and ends at 6 minutes, 19, or, or gets intense at the 6 minute, 19 mark. So most of the song is a guitar solo. Um which is very indicative of a certain period of rock and roll history where the guitar yep. solos were kind of like the marquee event of a, of a, of a song in rock, right? So this yeah. is a, a good old-fashioned rock and roll song. I'm going to play a few seconds of the beginning, starting at 2.55, and then I'm going to skip ahead to the 2.19 and, and, and show that part. So let's just listen to this for a little bit. Here we go. <laughs> Okay, I'm skipping ahead now to 619 and playing from there. Okay, and then it kind of starts a drum solo. Yeah. So, um, there's a taste. A taste of lipstick. Um, go to their channel, Lipstick Generation. Listen to their music. Buy their music if you like it. If you're into that kind of old school rock sort of sound, um, definitely recommended. Uh, uh, give them a listen, and uh, I guess look forward to. I'm, I'm interested now in uh, how they're going to be evolving, changing with their their new brand. Um, keep us informed, Greg. Keep us. Yeah, informed. Mike and I. Mike and I both play guitar, and. That's impressive. <laughs> yeah, that was good stuff. Good stuff, That's for good. sure. I was into it. Okay. Thank you again, Greg, for that. Uh, Dude, McGuire's uh, putting some fire, some fire emojis into the chat. <laughs> <laughs> he was into it. Uh, Real Dracula says, yo, this is actual flames. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. Okay. Uh, okay. Our next one comes from Chocolate Rob. Again, long, long uh, supporter. Uh, long-standing supporter of the channel. Um, so 
I'm going to read his uh, sort of introduction to this as well. It says, okay, so I've been avoiding doing this because all the other videos featured on the community story section are brand new and of a really highest or of the really highest quality. And these videos, the videos he's sharing, are all nearly 10 years old now and made entirely on free software for mostly my own enjoyment. Back in the day, if I really enjoyed the story in a video game, I plugged it into my VCR and recorded the cutscenes into a movie of sorts. The three series I really focused on were Prince of Persia Trilogy, the Legacy of Kane series, and Megert Story. A little bit of an aside here, but uh, back when Kaysen and I were making movies in junior high and high school, oh, yeah. um, I, I had a similar method for because we were making a Star Wars movie. And so we'd have the we would shoot the internal like cockpit shots of the pilots going like I'm going in, yeah. and then I would record from the VCR in a similar fashion like uh, Star Wars Rogue Squadron or something like that, where we'd show the ship like flying in and like shooting at stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I remember those days of using a VCR to record gameplay footage. It was not um, ideal. <laughs> so yeah. I feel you there. Uh, he goes on to say, sometimes I later uh, updated them to writable DVDs edited with Windows Movie Maker and then later posted a Soul Reaver 1 video on a YouTube channel that I'd only ever got so I could post comments on other videos. It was received warmly despite the terrible quality and I decided to do it for real, but still on the cheap. I had a 10-minute video limit at the time, so in the entire thing is made into playlists. The three mentioned above are my best ones, though I've dabbled with a few others too. All the playlists contain all cutscenes and dialogue edited with enough gameplay to flesh out into credible movies, with as much immersion-breaking visuals removed as possible, screen text and the like. Possibly what gives these videos the most value, however, is that I have crammed the description boxes with as much extra lore, theories, and bonus features as I could find and fit. Being a lot of playlists, there were a lot of room. Hmm. Um, the video quality may not be uh, very high by today's standards, but you may just find something to enjoy. So uh, let me go ahead and first of all, um, two things. One, I'm going to switch to showing it on the screen here. Uh, but secondly, I'm going to post these links into the chat. And of course, these will also be in the uh, in the description on YouTube. So we have Vagrant Story, Prince of Persia, The Sands of Time, Legacy of Cain, Blood Omen. Now, I, you know, I can kind of see, you know, why Rob is hesitant and and he's like well there's a bit of a perfectionistic mindset in his like hesitancy to share this but i think there's a lot more value rob than you're giving yourself credit for in these because especially for any kind of rpg like that's a long it's a longer game i don't know how long um let's say like legacy of cain blood omen is i haven't played that but vagrant story is a very very hardcore experience like you don't just pick up vagrant story even if you've played it in the past let's say you played it when it came out in the late 90s hmm. or 2000 or whatever it was and you haven't played it in 20 years you're not going to pick up that game and be like it's not like riding a bike again it's just like yep i'll hop right back onto this and just keep right. going <laughs> you have to get very invested in the mechanics of vagrant story to play through that and i think there are a lot of people 
who potentially loved these games and maybe have forgotten some of the details of the story and they really liked the story. Um, but they're not necessarily interested in going through the quagmire of learning those mechanics again <laughs> in order to enjoy Vagrant Story now. And so having a playlist here with, um, like you said, like really like in, in a, all the work and thought that you've put into it in terms of like making it into a movie-like experience, taking away text elements on the screen, adding the extra bits of lore into the descriptions, and being able to watch the story from beginning to end and go, yeah, yeah this game was great. I remember this. There's, I think there's tons of value in that. And um, I would like to see uh, you get back into this again as a hobby. I think that this is a, a really unique thing that I had. I don't see a lot of people do, especially at the level and uh, the level of detail to which that you've put into doing it. And with the the ease of access to free software like OBS and other things mm -hmm. where you can record high quality uh, game footage, um, there are definitely ways that you could do this still for free, essentially, um, using just open uh, source software and get higher quality and kind of like build something. I, I would encourage you to do that if you care to or have time for it or want to anymore, right? Um, because I, I really think this is cool. And this is a really cool way of revisiting past experiences that you had um, and being able to enjoy them again without having to go back and pull out your PlayStation out of a, a box in your parents' attic or something and, and trying to, like, remember all the, like, the intricate freaking, like, mechanics of the game <laughs> again. You know, uh, I think there's a lot of value in this. So I definitely yeah. recommend that everyone go and check out Chocolate Rob's channel, check out these playlists and see what he's got going on and uh, encourage him to continue if he cares to do that. Um, cause I think it's awesome. So again, those links will be in the description. Uh, check them out. Okay. Um, lastly, this is the last part of our podcast for today. Okay. Um, this comes from dude McGuy on Patreon and, um, I'm going to read the question first, but there's actually a, a much longer sort of setup to the question that mm -hmm. I think is going to continue on some points we've made about plot twists and continue them into a discussion next week about what makes a good villain. So uh, Doom McGuy says, can you guys give your thoughts on what makes a good villain and how to write a good archetypal villain character? Um, I don't know if you knew this, Doom McGuy. We have a list of topics that we've created for the podcast, and what makes a good villain is one of them. So it is. I'm glad that you're yeah. bringing it up. We will give our initial, like, quick, quick thoughts on this now, and we'll flesh them out a bit as we come into next week. I think. Um. Anyways, how to write a good archetypal villain character like Sauron or the Joker, for example. How would you try to create a new kind of archetypal villain character that wouldn't be rejected by the modern audience as too simple or cliche? Hmm. Okay, here's the context. In a few of the recent podcasts, Kaysen has mentioned that the modern audience now wants their villain antagonist characters to have more gray motivations behind their plans and actions. Yeah. This was a side note when discussing Xehanort in Kingdom Hearts 3. People don't seem to want purely archetypal villains in their fiction these days, and Hollywood has even responded by uh, rewriting certain archetypal villains to be the heroes, such as Maleficent and Dracula. 
This has especially been a big criticism of many Marvel movie villains in the past, such as Ultron from Avengers 2 and Apocalypse from X-Men, for example. Sure enough, Marvel responded to this criticism by rewriting the villain character Thanos to have, traumatic, to have a traumatic past and change his motivations for collecting the Infinity Stones, giving him, more, uh, giving him sort of a flawed but makes sense from his twisted point of view type of motivation to his genocidal plan. But in the comics, Thanos does not have these motivations at all. Usually, when Hollywood rewrites a character from the source material, it's a huge issue for devoted fans, especially comic book fans. But because Marvel rewrote Thanos' motivations to be more gray, very few fans are complaining about the character change. In fact, he's become many fan favorites, uh, many fans' favorite villain in the MCU. I can see the desire to have more realistically written and human villains. It helps the audience sympathize with the character and see what led them to become evil, but part of me feels like this is being applied to stories for no other reason than to simply cater to what the audience is demanding. I feel like archetypal villains are usually just purely evil for no reason, usually to convey some kind of ideology or negative human trait for the hero to oppose. Vampires, for example, are the idea of selfishness or narcissism embodied in a human monster form. The creature literally needs to feed on the life of another person in order to sustain itself. When you rewrite a vampire character to just be to just be misunderstood or a character that we should sympathize with, I feel like that can undermine the character archetype altogether. So uh, I feel like Kaysen will have some strong opinions on this. Let's start there. Well, I, I personally think archetypes exist for a reason. They're almost like encoded into our DNA. It's our general experiences with life. It's the general principle of how humans perceive the world and extract meaning from the world. So I just don't mind it, but a lot of people do. A lot of people think that, and I think they've been led to think this way through a modernist um, kind of progressive mindset, I suppose, um, that, you know, you gotta, you gotta do things differently all the time. You can't just, uh, do things the way that they've been done in the past. And in a lot of ways, I understand that. I have one example, which would be the the second Harry Potter film, right? You have a the basilisk that lives in the basement, basically, of the castle, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of slithers around. And the basilisk, if if it sees you, you turn into stone or something. You freeze. You can't move. Something like that. Or it just kills you. I believe you turn into stone, though, right? And um, it has this power with its eyes of being able to do that. And it, it, it's the snake that lurks beneath the castle. And what's interesting is that you've got kind of the, um, you know, Medusa of old, you know, mythology uh, and how she had her head of snakes. And if you looked at the snakes, you were, you were frozen, right? You couldn't move. And that story goes back for a really long time. And, and if you think about it, what do a lot of, animals that are prey do when a predator shows up <laughs> it's kind of the deer in the headlights thing or like a rabbit when a, when a snake pops up a rabbit literally does not move and then it'll just kind of it'll bolt off on its own and make its make its escape but humans if you see something that you um you know if a human comes across a snake often our first reaction is to freeze it's literally what happens you know if you run across a cougar or a bear i've never run across one before but i my understanding is whenever I encounter something scary, I freeze. I don't know what to do at first. And then I kind of make a plan and try to move from move on. Right. But the idea that when the snake looks you in the eye, you freeze 
um, and that that turns you into its prey essentially is is an old idea and it kind of goes back thousands and thousands of years but the way that it is done within the harry potter books is there's like a greater villain almost you know you've got you've got your lord voldemort who's an archetypal villain in and of himself um but you you have this um this basilisk that you have to deal with first on the way to dealing with Lord Voldemort later on, which is almost an exact archetype of an ancient story, but told in a little bit of a different way. And the way that the basilisk has kind of come about is different too, because um, the uh, like Voldemort is, is the ultimate real bad guy. Right. And so you can kind of get around, you can kind of create your archetypal stories and stuff like that using maybe a different, have a different bad guy, have like two bad guys <laughs> and one of them subservient, the other one's, you know, above. And of course, in the Harry Potter case, they're both rel- relatively archetypal, I'd say. Uh, but they do make their own little differences, their own little changes. But it's it's the main points of the villains that you, um, or not the villains, but I guess of the basilisk that you need to re- remember. It's not necessarily what the thing is or what it has been. It's what it represents. And the fact that the basilisk slithers about in the basement tunnels of this marvelous castle school is kind of like um it's it's a it's a hint that this school has uh skeletons in the closet it has dark secrets buried underneath it right at the hogwarts school of wizardry and magic and that you know that's represented by this snake but it also uh, the snake also represents the evil that is in many institutions all like all institutions and even all people that deep down there's a snake that slithers around and that can kill you and anyways the the idea of an archetype isn't necessarily tell the story the way it's been told the idea of an archetype is more tell a story um the way that humans understand those types of representations and project them and if you can do that in a new way that's fine the basilisk didn't have to be a snake um sure it could have been well, I say a dragon. Dragons basically are snakes, but it could have been it could have been anything. It could have been a, a thing, right? It could have been a, a werewolf, or I don't know, a dog, or what? What? Is, there's nothing quite as scary as a snake, honestly. <laughs> Maybe a spider. Maybe a, a I know statue Potter... that you look in the face, and sure. the statue judges you, or something. Sure, something like that. But something as long as the representations, the underlying representations, are there, you can kind of do whatever you want. What I don't like is a lot of. Uh, movies and and books or games or films or whatever they they kind of will they won't the the evil villain doesn't necessarily represent anything and so it's hard to take any meaning from that which is stories are made to have meaning be the ultimate kind of like objective or aim of the story right and when when you create a villain that's kind of good and kind of bad and he does some kind of bad things but he's got a his intentions are good then you you end up with a story that kind of doesn't get you anywhere it doesn't other than, Hey, everyone's both good and bad. Right. so that's fine. Um, but it's, it's really hard to, to represent and to symbolize things, especially your, you know, your mind's um, like perception of those things and to craft kind of meaning around that when everything kind of ends up being the same, you know, this villain's no different from your hero and your hero is not all that different from the dog and the dog's not all that different from the whole planet earth. You know, everything basically has these weird, like gray motivations and and that doesn't actually resonate very well with the human heart i don't think but you know 
to each their own, I suppose. But I'm not yeah. a huge fan. You don't it just the idea that you're telling an archetypal story or you have an archetypal villain doesn't mean that you are telling the you're they tell the exact same story over over the you know about the exact same villain every time. It just means that the underlying motivations need to resonate with the human spirit and with uh, you know what humans have been um, kind of reacting to story wise for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Yeah. I think that there's kind of people might tend to look at this in a binary sense again. <laughs> yeah. It's got to be this way or that way, right? Um and and I think that 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 can be true in a lot of ways, but I think that it's 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 easy to look at something in that binary sense and be dismissive of it, right? Like let like I agree with basically everything you said, Casey. Yeah. Like that archetypes are created with the purpose and i think especially in in ancient traditional storytelling were used uh symbolically it, it, there's a lot of symbology a lot of metaphor a lot of that sort of thing yeah um was much more common uh using analogies to get across a point parables that kind of thing mm. was kind of like the way you did it back then like this thing represents this thing right, right? and it was clear to the audience at the time because that's how it was just more common form of telling stories. And so when someone told the story, you were meant to reflect like, well, then what did that character represent? Right? Like in right. real life. <laughs> um, rather than looking at it sort of at face value isn't that character was that character who served this purpose in the story and was the evil villain of Harry Potter or whatever it is. It's like, no, what does the archetype of the villain Right. represent in real life i think that that way of looking at storytelling was maybe i could be off base on this but more commonly understood and was like uh mainstream so to speak <laughs> in, for, in an for older time, time yeah. <laughs> than it is today where we have a more literal kind of like face value form of, of storytelling um where you're meant to literally believe thanos Thanos doesn't stand. I'm not saying he doesn't, but I'm saying okay. Let's not use Thanos. I haven't even seen that movie. Let's say there's, a, there's just there's just a, a movie that comes out, and you, and you're supposed to think of the villain in that movie as some kind of like obvious archetype for or, or analogy for some real world concept or idea. It's just that's a character in the story. He's a person who serves this purpose. And, there's more of that kind of thing now, right? And so I think that this move towards a, a, a gray area of looking at things and giving villains human motivations is itself serving the purpose of the theme in those stories when done right of serving as a, a thought experiment about the way that human beings think and what motivates us and why we do the things we do. Right. So that's what it's exploring. Whereas we can't apply the same principle to Sauron or some other uh, maybe like a ancient Greek myth villain. Right. Because we're not supposed to think about Medusa or something like that as a human being with human character traits and a human like way uh, of, of thinking and being motivated. Like that's right. not the purpose of that character at all. The purpose of the character is along the lines of what you're talking about, right? Like, and so as long as 
you clearly define that for the audience in the way that you're telling the story, um, I think that people will accept archetypal villains as long as they're not to made to believe or led to believe that we're supposed to like understand the realistic motivations behind how this character is acting. Let's say um, putting a, a strong archetypal type of villain that is meant to represent uh, more of a, a concept about fear in the face of a predator or something like that, right? Mm. That's what its purpose. But right. then we put them into a movie where there's this pontificating dialogue and monologuing from the villain about talking about why he's doing what he's doing. Like that's yeah. where it starts to sound weird uh -huh. because it's like, well, that's not very realistic. People who are thinking through their motivations like that don't tend to believe they are evil in real life. <laughs> uh, the villains of our own history don't believe they were villains for the most part. They thought that they were doing the right thing. They believed in their ideology and they often were convinced that they aren't evil, yeah. even though they are. And, and, and exploring how the mind arrives at conclusions like that is very interesting psychologically, and you can learn a lot from that. And this is where the moral gray villain plays a role, I think, in modern storytelling, is when we're trying to examine that psychologically, and yeah. we're trying to uh, alert ourselves, warn ourselves of the tells. Because there are people in our own lives who, I mean, we, we think of like uh, serial killers um, like um, Ted Bundy or something, right? Mm -hmm. People around him would have never believed and, and, and didn't. That's there were true. a lot of people who came to his defense. No, Ted Bundy could never do that. There's no way, right? Like there's a persona that he carried of this well-dressed, handsome uh, lawyer, yeah, uh, law student, and 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 the 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 twist <laughs> of that worldview being shattered in the minds of people who think on a more binary level, going no way, that is impossible. There's no way that the killer and Ted Bundy can be the same. That's not possible. Those things are separate in my mind. Right. So when you explore moral gray area in the human condition, in human behavior, in psychology, if that's what you're really getting at with your story's thesis, your story's uh, premise and theme and message, that's where that supports it very strongly, I feel. But that doesn't mean that we have to do away with archetypal symbology in storytelling. Because that can also be very effective to have us think about um, maybe vaguer or larger concepts in more of an abstract way. And, and you know, making, a, I don't know, a, a characteristic, maybe a, an emotion like fear into a character, right? And the character embodies and, and represents the concept of fear as an archetype. Like that's still valuable. And, and just because they explored that more often, I would say in ancient forms of storytelling than they do today, which is more on the psychological behavioral side of explore, exploring, you know, doesn't mean that one or the other is right or wrong, or that you can only do it this way or that way, or that the villain can't be interesting unless they have human motivations and a lot of complexity to their, uh, psychology. 
I think there's room for both. Both can be very enjoyable. It's just as long as that's made clear enough to the viewer so they don't expect I'm going in to to see something about human behavior, but this archetypal villain is not realistic, is not emoting uh, believable human behaviors. So that's a bad villain. As long as they know and the premise is well established that, oh, this represents a concept, you accept that. You know what I mean? So it's kind of on the storyteller to establish that and clearly communicate that. Um, but there's, it's definitely, there's definitely no right or wrong way to go about that. And archetypal yeah. villains are just fine if you use them properly, if, if you use them as a tool to an ends, right? You know what's kind of funny is around the time that th- this idea of having an archetypal villain has kind of fallen out of favor with the public's, you know, idea of what they want in movies and stories and stuff is around the time that like mockumentary style filmmaking started becoming like Mm. a bigger thing, like stuff like the office basically, or I don't know, just stuff that stuff where it's all people and it seems real and it doesn't make any sense to have your archetypal characters (laughs) in a, a what is supposed to be as far as you're you're supposed to think that it's a real setting this is real setting these are real people anytime yeah. you have you know a story where you are you know supposed to think that we're just watching a real thing happen with a bunch of mm-hmm. real people archetypal stuff doesn't fit at all yeah, yeah <laughs> it just yeah. doesn't make sense there and in, in comedy there could be i mean in the office particularly i mean maybe you could make the argument that uh there are archetypical characters in the office in the sense of uh, michael always acts the same way like his characters don't really change (laughs) necessarily right and same with like dwight and stuff like jim's the reasonable yeah it's true they all kind of fit their own little stereotype if it was a drama i would be 100 percent on board that like that wouldn't work yeah. Because we're trying to, yeah, if, it, if I'm meant to believe it's real and we're looking at human behavior, we're specifically in these situations looking at how characters interact with each other, like, and, and you have a character who always just does this just because. Not to say that there aren't people that don't fall into patterns of behavior that are repeatable and that they kind of just are predictable people. That's all true as well. But generally, what I'm saying is, is that I, I agree with the premise of what you're saying in that. If, if we have a drama and we're looking at characters and we're meant to believe it's real in the mockumentary style, like we're meant to believe these people are real and we're there with them. Yeah, I think that having like very um, traditional archetypal uh, type of characters is, is not the best fit for that. But if we're making a fantasy story <laughs> or, 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 or exploring yeah. a mythology, right? That's when you can work those things in and they fit a lot better, in my opinion. Um, Sure. Anyways, anything else? No. Okay. I think that's it, everybody. Any good comments from people here? Mm, Yeah, a lot of people talk about the Dark Knight. I mean, obviously, when you talk about these, um, these archetypal kind of storytelling and stuff and where you can use people to represent things that normally would be represented by literally a monster. Um, you know, Batman and the Joker often come up, but yep. um, yeah, like people are like saying the entire, the entire premise of that, right. Is two opposing ideologies like Batman exactly. standing for an ideology, the Joker standing for an ideology. So yeah. you're not supposed to look at them necessarily 
it's not two people real it's, human people as much yeah. as two ideas clashing yeah right? they represent their ideas so dude mcguy saying joker represents chaos batman represents order and they're good archetypal villains because they're the, the exact opposite and the representations yeah. are what make them archetypal not necessarily who they are what they say what they look like you know all that kind of stuff um and then war 624 saying you can look at joker in the dark knight they kept the whole force nature aspect that the joker has embodied the last 30 years in his comics joker fits an archetype but he's also looked at as one of the greatest villains of all time perfect perfect example yeah i love it and then people talking about ted bundy but you know anyways um oh ted yeah bundy. alex mamadis has a very interesting comment saying to me it all depends the story you're you're telling may or may not need uh, that kind of villain I actually read that a little bit differently at first. Still, sometimes stories you tell don't need a villain at all. That's what I thought he was getting at. But mm. sometimes it's man versus yeah. nature, and then it's just nature. Um. Okay. Well. Yeah. There guys, you go. That about does it. Thanks for joining us for this week's podcast. I think next week we're gonna kind of dive even further into this. Um, what makes a good villain discussion? Yes. Do a little more research into it talk about it a little more amongst ourselves and then uh, come back and talk about it in greater depth next week. Wait. One last thing. I'm going to have to redo the ending, okay? So I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to edit this later. For those of you who um are in our book club, I closed the poll for voting and uh the Silmarillion won this uh month's uh poll for the book All club. All right. So if anybody out there is not aware of our book club, but would like to join the book club as we cover like the crux of Tolkien mythology <laughs> in the Silmarillion um, and could possibly lead into reading uh, Lord of the Rings and stuff. Hmm. Um, make sure and pick up a copy of the Silmarillion if you don't have it already. And we're going to start reading that uh, after our finale of the current book, which is Crime and Punishment on Tuesday. Um, and, and we'll basically be, Four, so the way we structure it is we do it in four weeks. So we break every book down into four sort of like assignments for writing or for reading. And so we'll give the assignment on, on Tuesday, but join us on Twitch. Uh, join the Discord so that you know when we go live. If you want to be made aware of announcements, you've got to join the Discord because we can actually reach everyone on Discord. We can't otherwise. Yeah. So join the Discord. Join the book club. Um, we're going to be reading The Silmarillion. And if you'd like to... Uh, be involved in the analysis and discussion on that book um come and join us there that is the end of our podcast thank you for your support thank you for watching you guys are great and we will see you again next week peace out peace